And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for reminders like this. Thank you for times of worship like this that we can be reminded of how great you truly are. And yet, even as I pray that and say that, I recognize that we see but a glimpse of your glory now. We, we see now as in a mirror dimly, but that day is coming when we will see face to face, that we will behold and see the radiance of your glory in a way that we don't now. And yet until that day, Father, help us to know the truth that we sang this morning, that you are the everlasting God that you rule and reign, that you lift up those who are weak, those who are in need, that you are abundant in your grace and in your goodness. Father, as we turn now again to our study in the book of Revelation, give us hearts to love the truth. Give us minds to know the truth. May we be ready and prepared to walk in joyful obedience and worship and celebration because of who you are, because of what you have done and what you will yet do. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. If you would please be seated and turn in your Bibles again to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12. And as you turn there, let me remind you, some of you may have forgotten this. Sure, Sure you didn't, but just in case you did, we began our study through the book of Revelation last year on July 2nd. And I'm so pleased to tell you that last year we made it halfway, halfway through this glorious, wonderful book. So good news, congratulations, well done. But here's what I'm really excited about as we now come to chapter 12. Maybe this is your first Sunday with us. Or maybe this is your first Sunday with us studying this particular book, and I'm so pleased to tell you, you picked a great Sunday to be here. You picked a great chapter uh, to start this study in the book of Revelation. Or maybe you're here this morning and you have been a part of our study thus far, but maybe you're thinking, oh yeah, book of Revelation, I, I kind of remember that. I kind of remember we were, we were doing some things in that and Wait, what's that book about again? Why are we studying this? What are we, what are we learning? I have good news for you as well. There's a reason why last year we stopped after chapter 11. There's a reason why we wanted to start here in the new year in chapter 12. And here's why. Revelation chapter 12, it serves as a wonderful rally point. If I can say it that way, or it serves as a wonderful gathering place to meet and to reorient our thinking and to remind us of what this book is all about. As we will see this morning in chapter 12, the action, okay, the action of God's judgment, the action of seals being opened and trumpets being blown, it stops. It stops. The action stops and we are given Pictures. We are given reminders of what life and history is really all about. Chapter 12 pumps the brake, it slows the train, it pulls back the curtain to show us the way things really are, to show us reality, to show us truth that is so often hidden from our physical eyes. Please note this on your outline. Revelation 12, it unveils the big picture. It highlights vital but easily forgotten spiritual truth. What we see here 
What we see here in signs and pictures that John will see and John will describe to us, these are truths that we need to remember. These are truths that we need to know, but we just often don't think about. These are truths that often go unnoticed and unrecognized in our day-to-day routines. These are truths that really do shape the world around us, but they are so easy to miss. Now, before we jump back into chapter 12, since it's been a few weeks, I just want to remind you of something that we said all the way back on week number one, and it's so important. Please note it on your outline, this book. If, in fact, if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. This book is meant to inspire worship, wonder, love, trust, and praise. And we, we know this is true. We know that this is true of the book of Revelation because the book primarily does one thing. It reveals Jesus as he truly is. He is the lamb that was slain. He is the victorious, the risen lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the reigning eternal king. He is the one who is worthy to fulfill justice. He is worthy to fulfill God's plan of making all things new. He is the shepherd who has not forgotten his sheep, but he is in and amongst his people, moving in them and working in them and through them to purify them, to cleanse them, to use them for his glory. He is the groom who is coming for his bride. He is the judge whose wrath is terrible, but whose judgments are pure and perfect. And listen, this emphasis on Jesus, it is made crystal clear from the very first words of this wonderful book we read in chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this is. That's what this is all about. This book reveals the coming glory, the work, the judgment, the grace of Jesus. And it does it sometimes in powerful symbols and imagery that is meant to wake us up and to bring us back to these fundamental realities. God loves to use these kinds of pictures and symbols. Listen, to put steel into your spine, to put courage and hope into your heart, to put peace and joy into your mind, to put patience and love and steadfastness into your soul. Remember where we are. Remember who first received this revelation from Jesus. So as I ask those questions, let me just tell you what I'm going to do for the next one minute. I'm going to give you a one-minute recap of everything that we learned and talked about in the first 11 chapters. Okay, so let me just remind you, this is where we're going. Let me give you the recap, and then we'll move into chapter 12. Remember, the Apostle John received this vision, this prophecy from God, when he was an old man on the Isle of Patmos, having been put there in exile, and the church is struggling. The church is struggling. The church is, is enduring persecution and difficulties and, and, and questions. And so first in this revelation, is, as Jesus appears to John, he gives him seven letters 
to send to the seven churches. These letters are meant to encourage the churches, to remind the churches of what they have been given in Christ. These letters highlight areas where growth and progress is needed. These believers, again, they were facing persecution. They were facing temptation. They were facing discouragement. And so Jesus speaks to them in order to help them and to bless them and to shepherd them, his people. And then, after receiving these letters, John is shown, for our benefit and for the church's benefit, John is shown the glory of heaven, the throne room of heaven, the worship of heaven. And in this scene of glory, John sees Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who looks as if he had been slain and yet he is standing. He sees Jesus come and take the scroll from the right hand of the Father, the scroll that unlocks and executes God's plan of judgment, God's plan of justice, God's plan for making all things new, God's plan for glorifying His Son, Jesus Christ, God's plan for blessing His people. So, Jesus takes this scroll and He begins to open the seals. He opens seven seals, seven seals, and as He does, judgment comes to the earth, to those who persist in their sin, to those who reject safety and life in Christ. And then, after opening those seven seals, it leads to seven trumpets. Seven trumpets that blow, that that wake up humanity to what is real. Seven trumpets that powerfully demonstrate the foolishness of sin. The insanity of hating God and opposing Him. These trumpets show the disaster and the devastation that sin always brings. Seven seals lead to seven trumpets, which will eventually lead to seven bowls. But here's the funny thing. We don't get to the bowls until chapter 16. Why is that? Why, why is there a break? Why don't we just go from seals to trumpets to bowls? Well, remember what we said earlier. Revelation chapter 12, it unveils the big picture. It helps us not to get lost as God is unfolding and showing this revelation to John. This chapter highlights vital but easily forgotten spiritual truth. So please note this on your outline. Here's, here's what I'm trying to say. God doesn't just want to show us what He's going to do in the future. He doesn't. He, he doesn't just want to pack your mind full of details and information so that you can win Bible trivia games and Bible baseball and Sunday school. God does not want to do that. He wants us, he wants us to see how it all connects back to Christ. How it all centers on the person and the work of Christ. This is why you need chapter 12, you need chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15 before just moving on to the conclusion of the bold judgments. God wants us to see how everything, including the enemies of God, including the plans of the enemies of God, God wants us to see how everything works together to ultimately glorify Christ, to highlight His wisdom, His grace, and His power. And so before we rush off into the bold judgments, John is shown signs, great signs, big signs, glorious signs. 
that encourage us if we have eyes to see, (laughs) that teach us if we have eyes to see, that remind us of what life is all about, of what's really happening behind the scenes in the world in which we live. And so, let's pull back the curtain and let's see these signs that John has shown. This morning, we have a... All we're going to do is cover six verses, okay? So if my introduction scared you, if you're like, man, I got the slow cooker going at home, you're going to be just fine. Because we're just going to cover six simple verses, and then Pastor Stephen will explain all of the rest of it next week. So that's good news for me. But the first six verses of chapter 12, here's what we see. John writes, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Now, stop there for just a moment. This got serious real quick. And this got intense and painful and there's agony and there's this woman and she is in labor. And, and, and this is serious And yet, look at what we read next. This is the first sign. Here's the next sign. Look at verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now stop there for a moment. If that language sounds familiar from last week, it should. Pastor Stephen just preached on this in Psalm 2, where we read about how the Messiah is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. So, what about this child who is born? What about this child who, that the dragon wants to eat, who is to rule the nations? Read on in the middle of verse 5. We read, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So this morning, we're going to examine these signs in the order in which they're given to us. We're going to see how they relate to one another, how they interact with one another. We're going to consider what they mean and what they teach us. And after reading those six verses, just from memory, you could probably recount the basic structure and the main characters. First, there is a woman, a woman who is clothed in a peculiar way. She is clothed with the sun, and the moon is under her feet, and on her head there is a a crown of twelve stars, and she is in pain. She is in agony. She's pregnant. She is she's about to give birth. It's time to call the midwife. And yet we don't see a midwife. 
Next, we see a red dragon. A dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his seven heads are seven crowns, and this is an influential dragon. This is a mighty dragon with a mighty tail. He sweeps down a third of the stars, and where does he bring them? Down. He brings them down to earth. And this dragon is ferocious and horrible and terrible and murderous, and he stands before the woman ready to eat the child as soon as the child is born. But the child is not eaten by the dragon. In fact, we are told this child who is born, he is the one who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. And so instead of being eaten by the dragon, he is caught up to God. He is caught up to the very throne of God. But of course, this now leaves the woman seemingly alone with this angry, frustrated, hideous, ferocious dragon. So she flees to the most unlikely of places. Where does she go? To the wilderness, where we're told that God has prepared a place for her. She does not starve. She is nourished by God for 1,260 days. So, let's consider the woman. Please note it on your outline. The woman represents Israel, the people of God through whom the Messiah came. And this scene of pain and agony, it is accurate. If you know the history of God's people, the history of Israel leading up to the coming of Messiah, it is full of pain and turmoil and trouble, constant warfare, constant temptation to idolatry, which they so often gave into. There's times of exile and discipline from God. And even in the good times, even in the times when Israel had good kings and good leaders like Moses and Joshua and Gideon and David and Solomon, it was still rough. It was still very difficult. It was still a very bumpy road. In a bumpy ride, there was much pain and much disappointment because again, as Stephen reminded us last week, the best of human leaders are still sinful and will still fall short. Whether they knew it or not, God's people were longing for the true king. They were longing for the promised Messiah. They were longing for the one who would actually love God perfectly. He would, who would fulfill the will of God and do everything that God wanted him to do. Who would glorify God and who would love his people. They were longing for this one. So where is he? Where is the promise of his coming? And how does Roman oppression and captivity and and, and idolatry and sin and terrible kings, how does all that fit into the promises of God and, and the promise that we are given of this one who is coming? And why is it taking so long? And yet, even with all of that being true, even with all of the pain and the agony and the waiting God's glory was still shown amongst his people. It was still seen in in the life of the nation as God loved them and provided for them. God's power was still evident in his people, which is why this woman is clothed and described as she is in profoundly radiant 
and glorious ways. Look again at verse 1. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. This is no ordinary woman. This is no ordinary woman. She's clothed here in shining radiance. With the radiance of the sun, she is honored with the moon at her feet. She has crowned a victor with a victor's crown of 12 stars. How can the people of God really be described this way? How, how can the people of God, looking at all of their failures and all of their faults and all of their disappointments and discouragements, how can they be described in such a good, glorious way? Answer, because God is faithful. Because God is faithful, the people of God will ultimately be victorious because of God. Because of God's work in them and through them. And it's interesting to note... <clears throat> That what we see here, this imagery for Israel, we've seen it before back in Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis 37, Joseph has a dream. And in this dream, these very symbols, these very same lofty and glorious symbols of the sun, the moon, and the stars, they are used to represent the people of God. They are used to represent Jacob, his father Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. These symbols are used to represent Jacob's wife and his brothers, the children of Israel. So this is familiar imagery to use in representing Israel as God's chosen, beloved people. But... And we'll see this more next week. In the second half of chapter 12, we see that this woman has offspring. She has children, not just the one child who is to be born, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but she has other offspring. And we will see how her children encompass not only the Old Testament people of God leading up to Messiah, but all of the people of God, Jew and Gentile, who are now loved in Christ and who, as the text will say, who hold to the testimony of Jesus as Messiah. Now, before we move on from this first sign of the woman who gives birth, who is not eaten by the dragon, but the child is not eaten, the woman's not eaten either, thankfully, but uh, nobody's eaten, uh, but this child is then caught up to God, to his throne. We should also remember this. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, God gave a promise. God gave a promise to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, to Satan, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here in Revelation 12, which pictures the coming of Jesus, we see the fulfillment of this promise. That this child, this Messiah who is to come, he is decisively victorious over the dragon. Which is why this next Christmas season, which is only about 320 days away, If you are looking for a way to spice up your nativity scene, either in your house or in your front yard, you need to add a red dragon to your nativity scene. A red, ferocious dragon somewhere in the background lurking to remind you and your family and your friends that, listen, when Jesus was born, he came to hostile territory. He came to enemy territory. We need to be reminded that Jesus was aggressively hated. 
and opposed by Satan and by his demonic forces. We need to be reminded that Jesus came to conquer. He did. He came to conquer sin, to conquer Satan, to conquer death for his people. So, with that in mind, let's talk more about this dragon. Please note it on your outline. The red dragon represents Satan, that hate-filled, hateful, murderous enemy of God and his people. And it's not hard. It's not hard to understand that this red dragon does, in fact, represent Satan, because John tells us plainly that he does just a few verses ahead. If you just jump forward to verse 9, look at what John writes. He writes, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So, who is this red dragon? He is that ancient serpent, that ancient deceiver who lied blatantly to Eve and, and, and encouraged her to question and to doubt the goodness and the kindness and the faithfulness of God who deceived her into eating the fruit. He is called in verse 9, the deceiver of the whole world, meaning meaning his lies, his influence, his deceptions, they are found everywhere. They just permeate everywhere. They seem to just run wild throughout the world. Lies of pride and lies of idolatry, lies of greed, lies of God-denying philosophies. They just spread like cancer everywhere. And in the last half of verse 9, where it talks about his angels, his demons, they were thrown down to earth with him. And this, this helps us, I think, to understand what is pictured and described in verse 4, where Satan sweeps down and he pulls down a third of the stars of heaven, meaning Satan brought angels with him. He brought them into his delusion. He brought them along into his self-destruction. So the point is, this dragon, Satan, he's very influential. He is. He's very influential. He manipulated many angels into joining him in his hatred and his war against God. And he wields extensive influence on earth. The dragon, in fact, he is so powerful. He is pictured as being so influential that here he has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on those hideous heads. You say, well, what's all of that about? Well, good news and bad news. Here, I, I don't know which is which, but here I'll just tell you the news and, and, and you can decide. Okay. Later in the book of Revelation, in chapter 17, God's going to come back to this imagery and tell us what these things represent. So we're going to talk about it more when we get to uh, chapter 17. But just for this morning, let me just briefly kind of summarize. These things symbolize and represent his ongoing influence, his destructive reign, where he uses ignorant, godless kings and rulers to accomplish his evil plans. And again, we'll talk more about that in, 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 in chapter 17. But, okay, here's the point of all that. You say, 
I don't, what do I need to know all that? Here's, here's what you do need to know. You, you need to know this. And I love this. I've been waiting all week to say this to somebody. Okay? For all of Satan's influence, for all of Satan's power, for all of his clever lies and self-centered plans, he can never do the one thing he actually desires to do. He can never succeed doing the one thing that he is determined to do. He cannot accomplish the one thing that matters most to him. Please note it on your outline. Satan did not, cannot, and never will dethrone Christ. He will never destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. He will never annihilate the Son of God, the author and perfecter of our faith. The one thing that Satan is so desperate to do is to steal the glory of Christ, to destroy Jesus, to take the very throne of God for himself. And he failed, and he continues to fail. He failed when Herod sent Roman soldiers to Bethlehem to try and kill the infant Christ and all the baby boys who were two years old and younger. He failed when he directly challenged Jesus in the wilderness. And Satan came to him three times, three times, trying to tempt him to turn stones into bread and to throw yourself down from the top of the temple, Jesus, and let me, I will show you the kingdoms of the world. I will give them to you if you just bow down and worship me. You get exactly what you want, Jesus. He failed. He failed every time. He failed when he used Judas to betray Jesus with a kiss into the hands of the religious leaders. He failed when the Roman soldiers nailed Christ to the cross and then they later verified His death by shoving a spear up into His side to ensure that He was dead. He failed because you cannot kill God. You cannot assassinate the author of life. Jesus walked out of the tomb. He walked out of the grave, risen and glorified and resurrected. And Jesus has ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is a catastrophic failure. Satan is a catastrophic failure. We don't, well, we should have time to do it, but we don't. But here's what you can do later with your friends and family. Go through Revelation chapter 12 and just count all the ways that Satan fails. It's, it's incredible. At every turn, he is a failure. He, he is a loser of catastrophic proportions. And if you know your New Testament, that is not new information to you. The New Testament writers continually portray Satan as a defeated, disgraced enemy. For example, let me give you two examples. One from Colossians 2, one from Hebrews 2. Colossians 2 says it this way. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside 
nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. Do you you hear the language that Paul uses? That Jesus, he set aside, he disarmed, he triumphed over his enemies. Hebrews 2 says it this way, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ's coming, Christ's victory at the cross, it solidifies, it guarantees the destruction of Satan, and it sets all those in Christ free. It sets us free from the, from the penalty of sin. It sets us free from fear of death because if you are in Christ, you have, you possess the gift of eternal life right now. It is a gift that is in existence currently. It is operative now and it will never die. It will never cease. It will continue on into glory. This is why the book of Revelation portrays Satan as an angry, frustrated, wild, violent, defeated enemy. His clock is ticking. Satan's days are numbered because the child has come. The child has come and he has overcome the evil one. With that in mind, look again at verse 5. John writes, She gave birth to a male child. I love this. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Please note it on your outline, in case you haven't guessed it already. The child is Jesus, okay? This is the one time, well, maybe not the one time, maybe not the only time, but when the Sunday school answer, it's the right answer. It's Jesus, okay? The, the child is Jesus who came, who conquered, who ascended, and who is coming again. And this is gloriously true. It is wonderfully true. But, it was, but what is so shocking And I'm sure you noticed it. You were shocked, just like I was shocked. What is so shocking about this passage, and verse 5 in particular, is how short and brief and concise it all is. Every time I read verse 5, I'm like, isn't there something more that you would like to say? Isn't there something more that you would like to show us about this child? Isn't there more information that you would like to give us? I mean, the way that verse 5 reads, it kind of sounds like Jesus was born and he ascended immediately into heaven and that's it. And that's all that Jesus ever did. He was born and he was ascended. What about his life? What about his teachings? What about his miracles? What about his, I don't know, his death and resurrection? Why does this passage focus so much on his arrival and his ascension? Isn't that other stuff important? Of course it's important. In fact, it's essential. But the point of this vision here is to highlight not all of the details about Jesus' life, but simply his coming, his victory, his ascension. The point of the passage here is this. Jesus came, Satan failed, God's people are secure, Christ rules. 
Okay, the rest of the New Testament is more than sufficient to fill in all of the details, all, all, of, all of the gaps in between all of those things. The point here is what Stephen talked about last week from Psalm 2, where the father says to his son, the father says to the Christ, to the Messiah, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And Revelation 12, it looks forward to the rule of, it looks forward to the reality of what is described in Psalm 2. And it's that same kind of big picture in mind that the writer of Hebrews tells us that there's something we need to do daily. There's something we need to do continually so that we don't forget this truth. It reads like this in Hebrews 12 two, that we're to be looking to Jesus, always looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so, with that truth in mind, we are now prepared to think and to talk about the wilderness. The wilderness. Look again at verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Please note this on your outline. The wilderness is that dependent place where God supplies for and grows his people. Isn't it interesting that the woman flees into the wilderness? Why can't God's people run away and flee to a cruise ship for once? Why can't we run away to an amusement park? Why can't we escape to an all-inclusive resort in the Bahamas? Why must it be the wilderness? Why did God put Moses in the wilderness to be a shepherd for so many years before appearing to him and sending him back to Egypt, bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. Why did God take the nation of Israel through the wilderness, through the desert, to the promised land? Why did David have to spend so much time in the wilderness, even after he was anointed king of Israel? He's in the wilderness, hiding from Saul for so long. Why did God do that before he would install David as, as king over the nation in Luke chapter 4? Why does Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit, go out into the wilderness for 40 days where he is tempted by Satan himself? Why does God seem to like the wilderness so much for his people? Why do we have to spend time there? Can't we learn? Can't we grow when we're smug? self-satisfied, comfortable, and feeling very self-sufficient? No. No! You, that's the right answer! No! We can't. We can't. We need the wilderness 
because we need to learn that it is God who provides for us. We need to learn dependence upon Him. Listen, we need to learn what it means to have joy and peace in Him, not joy and peace in just our nice, pleasant circumstances and in our nice, pleasant material possessions. And because of this, God, according to His wisdom, according to His goodness, according to His timing, He leads His people into the wilderness. He does. He does. He leads us into times when we are desperate for Him. He leads us into times when we see our need for Him. He leads us into times when we recognize our resources ain't going to cut it. We don't have what it takes in this wilderness situation. God leads us into times when we learn when we when we learn what it means to actually trust His wisdom, to seek His wisdom, and to rely upon His grace. And listen, the wilderness. It can look a lot of different ways. The wilderness, it can involve financial pressures, health challenges, relational conflict, family strife, persistent temptation, mental anguish, ministry discouragement and disappointment, and just, and so many other things. And listen, in just a few months, and I know it seems like we're going to be in the book of Revelation forever, I promise we're not. In just a few months, we're going to start a study through the book of James. And, and the book of James has so much to teach us about life in the wilderness, about life in trials and troubles and, 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 and difficulties. So we're going to be thinking a lot more about the wilderness, about trials, about what God is looking to do in His people in the hardships of this life right now. But for this morning, let me just say this, and it really goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Obviously, these wilderness times, these are not easy times. These are not times that we would choose. These are not times that we would seek after for ourselves. We don't naturally enjoy the wilderness. But later, but later, as we look back on the wilderness, we see how God was faithful. We see how God was good how he was gracious. We, we see how God was doing a work, not just in the circumstance, but he was a doing a work in his people. He was doing a work in you to build character and to grow love. This is, this is why the Apostle Paul could say with such confidence in Romans 5.3 saying this, he says, we rejoice in our, in our sufferings. We rejoice in the wilderness times knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. What what Paul is saying is that with a victorious Savior, with a wise, gracious, loving, heavenly Father with the Holy Spirit living in us, we can face, we can grow through even the most difficult of wilderness experiences that God brings us to. Now, as it relates, and some of you have been wondering, well, what, 
When are you going to get to the, the 1,260 days? When, when are you going to get to the specifics here in the passage? Okay, I'm getting, actually I'm not getting to it now. I'm going to pass the buck to Stephen on next week. But, but, let, me, but let me say this, and, and I have good reason for doing that, because chapter 12, as it continues next week, unfolds this and continues to unpack what we have merely just begun this morning. But, but let me say this. As it relates to that specific time mentioned of 1,260 days, I believe that there is a coming future fulfillment of what John sees here when God will care for his people, again, quite literally in the wilderness. But for this morning, as we close, let me give you three things to think about as it relates to all that we've seen here, as it relates to the woman, as it relates to the ferocious red dragon who hates Christ, who hates the people of God, as it relates to the wilderness, three things. Number one is this, the wilderness is good. Brothers and sisters, I pray that God will give us grace to see this year that if he leads you into the wilderness, it is for your good. Yes, it is for his glory and it is for your good. The wilderness, it does reveal, it does grow us in our dependence on God, on our need for God. And listen, anything that leads us closer to God is good. He is the source of all goodness and grace in our lives. So that's number one. Number two is this. The wilderness is temporary. And all God's people said... Amen. The wilderness is temporary. Uh, The wilderness is not the final destination. God brings his people through the wilderness to something glorious, to something wonderful, to the promised land, to fullness of life and joy with him. The wilderness is not the end. It is a means to an end that God uses for our good. And then number three is this. And the wilderness does bring training that we need. It brings growth that we need. It brings perseverance that we need. And again, we may not often like it, but then we look back and we see how God was so faithful. In fact, often we can't even see it until God has brought us through the wilderness and then we behold his work and his goodness. So what have we seen this morning? We've seen a radiant, cared-for woman, a defeated, frustrated, angry red dragon. We've seen an exalted, ruling child, Christ. We've seen a purposeful and God-ordained wilderness experience. So yes, we have, God's people, we have an influential, hostile, invisible enemy. But more importantly, we have a Savior who rules. We have a Savior who reigns. We have a Savior who has sent His Spirit to live in us. We have a Savior and a glorious good Father who uses even the wilderness to accomplish our good and His glory. So, we're going to pray in just a moment. But this morning, if you, and I know the new year just started, maybe your year ended in a wilderness And it's begun the same way. Maybe you find yourself in one of those difficult, barren, wilderness seasons of life. If that's you, man, we would love the opportunity to know this, that we might pray for you, 
that we might encourage you, that we might support you in any way that we can. We would we'd love to do that. We'd love to come alongside you as you walk through this season that the Lord has you in. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're unsure. You don't even know if you know Christ. You don't even know this child who was born, who conquered, who has ascended into heaven, who is who loves his people, who died for the sins of the world. Maybe you're I don't even know if I know that one. We would love a chance to talk with you as well. We we would love to tell you that today can be the day that you know him, that you become a child of God, that your sins are forgiven, that you are cleansed in him, that you have victory in Christ. Because he lives, we would love an opportunity to talk with you, to pray with you, to, to, to encourage you. And listen, you don't have to come forward right now. Reach out during the week, but don't stay silent. Don't stay silent. We'd love an opportunity to pray for you, to encourage you. So let's, let's pray together and let's ask God to grow us and lead us in this new year. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we gather here this morning, we again confess we do not see things as you do. You see the end from the beginning. You declare the end from the beginning. You rule over all. God, we we see but so little. God, help us to trust you. Help us to walk faithfully with you. Help us to lean and to press into you into your grace, into your word, into the wisdom which you promise to give to those who ask. So, Father, we do ask. We pray that you would give us wisdom as we go throughout this this new year, that we would trust you, that we would grow through the wilderness experiences that you give to us, that we would see the big picture, that we would be continually looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith that we would adore him and worship in spirit and in truth. And we pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.